You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. On today's show... Carlos Hawthorne will don a blindfold before being driven to the secret warehouse where Arcadia creates their spectacular festival experiences such as the Spider, which you might have seen at Glastonbury. And the sound artist Maria Chavez will be showing Max Pearl how she developed a performance technique called abstract turntablism, which involves manipulating a turntable and vinyl to produce all manner of fascinating sounds. But first, it's Behind the Track, our regular feature in which artists tell us the story behind tracks they wrote that went on to be classics. For this month's track, I'm going to quote a Discogs user called SamH72, who in 2014 said, Utterly original, game-changing stuff from Pinch. One of those tracks you can still roll out today which will stop people in their tracks. Not sure there's a category for this, it's just atmospheric, timeless and exceptionally deep music. He was referring to Cavalli, a track that the Bristol artist Pinch wrote back in 2004. When it was eventually released, it helped establish Pinch as a producer and establish Bristol as Dubstep's second city. And as Sam H72 mentioned, it's a track that seems to lose none of its potency over time even 13 years after its release. Hi, I'm Rob Ellis, known to many as Pinch or or DJ Pinch, and I'm just here talking today about one of the early tracks I wrote back in 2004, came out in 2006 on Planet Mew called Cavalli. So back around um, 2004, 2005, early years of dubstep um, for me, we used to uh, go up as a group of friends from Bristol to the forward nights, uh, first Thursday of the month, and kind of fell in love with the music there. Decided it would be uh, a very good match for the nightlife of Bristol and decided to start doing an event uh, called Context, which began in January 2004. Um, putting on basically a kind of mixture of uh, dub, electronica, um, dubstep, and and then at the end of the night, jungle and drum and bass. The idea being to try and kind of attract like-minded people to this sort of small, new emerging scene that that not so many people had heard about at the time. And, you know, because it was such a small scene at the time, there was very little in terms of releases that you could buy, I mean, barely a dozen or so records that were actually out, most of which on temper at the time, um, and then bits of instrumental grime and, and whatnot that would fit, fit in with it. it. It became very clear to me very early on that if you wanted to even play an hour-long set of this uh, style of music, you had to get your hands on some dub plates because that's what the vast majority of uh, 
all the DJs were playing, representing the new sounds. So uh, I got myself in the, uh, I'd say in the studio, it was just a bedroom at the time, with some hi-fi speakers and an early copy of Fruity Loops and started um, learning to make beats on a very basic level. I made a couple of um, tracks early on. The second one uh, was called Cavalli and, um, and I can remember actually the first time I played that one out on, on dub was in the, uh, the first ever subloaded put on later same year 2004 it was kind of embedded in an excitement of being part of an early scene and um, a sense of openness about where it would all go made it I mean I had very much confidence in, in what I was doing and you know I gave it to a few people um, to play out and funnily enough I mean the first person to play the track out and kind of champion it a little was an uh, American DJ called Joe Nice and uh, he, he loved it and then weirdly one of the only other people who cut it from the dubstep scene was uh, N-Type who perhaps became less known for uh, more sort of um, subtle or deep meditational kind of end of dubstep and represented a kind of harder, wobblier, more dance floor sound. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, when I initially sort of handed the track around, it wasn't it wasn't setting people on fire. And I was just thinking, okay, well, you know, that's a good start. I'll just kind of keep building on from there. Um, it didn't come out until 2006 because uh, it wasn't for another year or so, I think, until Mike Paradinas, who ran Planet Mew, heard it and just hit me up out of the blue and said, you know, we'd like to, to put this out. And I was I was genuinely surprised, to be honest. And uh, he said he was going to press a thousand records. And I thought he was mental. I thought there's no way anyone's going to buy a thousand records of that. But it did. It was a good call on his part and uh, helped me kind of take a little bit more confidence and positivity in, in what I was doing at the time as well. You know what, I almost never um, actually played that track out. For me, it's a very personal piece of music. I do have an emotional attachment to it um, very much. I think um, it's not something I, I listen to now, and it's certainly not something that I, I play out so much, but there's one sort of main sound, which is taken from a Cavalli track, and um, some drums that were kind of re-edited, but then pretty much everything else is, is just um, short samples like drum samples and short atmospheric samples that have been repitched and kind of taken out of context, essentially. I mean, the reason why it's called Cavalli is, is not really in reference to, the, to one of the samples that's in the track. I guess around the time my, my younger brother, um, he, he was going out with um, a, a girl from whose family's from, from northern India and um, he told me about this, this music and essentially uh, why, why she was passionate about it. And what I loved about it was more, if I'm honest, the idea than the actual um, music itself so much because Kavali is it's a very spiritual uh, music, but it's, um, it's sung. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, the Kavali singer is the emphasis in the music. But what I liked about it was the idea of um, 
how it's a spiritual form of music and, and the kind of headspaces that the music was designed or aimed to kind of take you in. So for me, that track was my Cavalli, my little spiritual happy place or whatever you might want to call it um, that I was trying to evoke um, in the music. I'm now going to hand over to Carlos Hawthorne, who's a staff writer here at RA. We arranged for him to be given a tour of the Arcadia Spectacular Warehouse, where this production team cooks up breathtaking festival experiences such as the spider. But to reach the warehouse somewhere outside of Bristol, he was first asked to put on a blindfold in order to protect its exact location. I'm standing outside Bristol Temple Meads train station, waiting to be picked up and driven to a secret location about 30 minutes outside of the city. My destination is the warehouse of Arcadia Spectacular. They're a performance art collective that combines sculpture, pyrotechnics, music, acrobatics, circus and lighting to produce immersive performances on a grand scale. They've built several machines, though the most famous is the Spider, a 50-ton mechanical arachnid that you might have seen at Glastonbury Festival or Ultra in Miami. The Spider is built from a mixture of scrap metal and unwanted industrial machinery, and it's a giant, 20 meters high and armed with flamethrowers, robotic arms, CO2 cannons, lasers, and a 360-degree Function 1 sound system. At the center of the Spider, suspended above the crowd, is a DJ booth, which since Arcadia started in 2007, has hosted some of the biggest names in dance music. As anyone who's been to an Arcadia performance will tell you, it's one of the most breathtaking spectacles on the festival circuit. Okay guys, in order to keep the location secret, I'm now going to need you to put these blindfolds on. My name's Pit Rush, I'm creative director of Arcadia Spectacular. My name's Bertie Cole and I'm the technical director for Arcadia. It's getting towards the middle of May and we're in our warehouse and uh, everyone is here working today getting things prepped mainly for Glastonbury. Most of our equipment came back from tour a few days ago and there's a massive process of getting that out and cleaning it and servicing it and getting it ready for the next assault which is Glastonbury so all roads head to Glastonbury. And what's a normal day like here? It depends what we're up to really. Sometimes it's a proper brainstorming research and development hub. You know, wires up across the place and people hanging off them, working out what weights they can take and how they move and things like that. Sometimes, like today, it's kind of, you know, getting the stuff that we know back and fixing it up and getting it ready for another gig. Why the secret location? It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, I'd better not go into it much further. But why did you set Arcadia up? It came about through both of our journeys, which were kind of independently sort of trailblazing through the kind of festival and party scene when we were younger. Um, I worked for a company called Kayam, which had the world's largest tensile structures, massive tents, and we used to move them all over the world 
for different events and parties and theatre shows and stuff. Did that from when I was a, a young kid, so I've been on the road for, for a long time. Um, and Pip worked with his brother and various other different exciting outfits that were building big sculptures out of scrap and moving moving them around the world to different events. And we, we actually knew each other as kids and uh, we'd sort of grown up a little bit together. And uh, yeah, our paths kind of just joined at the right time and uh, we sort of realised there was massive potential in a sort of putting both of our skills together and, and seeing what was possible there, but also seeing what wasn't really happening at the festivals and parties and, and that there was another total different new way of doing things. I mean, what was that? What, what was lacking? A lot of things were quite linear and a lot of things were not that immersive um, and a lot of things were kind of people weren't interacting with each other in the way, you know, the crowds weren't interacting with each other in the way that they could have done and we kind of came about with this concept of a 360 degree setup which engaged people and brought them into an, an immersive atmosphere where they were completely surrounded by things um, and we played with elements like fire and music and obviously the sculptures and working with scrap and all those things kind of came together into a sort of melting pot which which kind of became Arcadia and created the experiences that on a small scale then are done on a massive scale now. Was there a community in the UK of artists and engineers bringing old machinery back to life? Well some, some of my family, my, my elder brother and a lot of, lot of his generation were doing some quite amazing things, uh, building sculptures uh, like you know rhinos and things like that out, out of old tractors being brought back to life and driving them around and, and having a good time and turning up at parties and, and going nuts. Um, yeah, so we, we took a lot of inspiration from that, but I think a big key to our thing was, was collaborating some of those skills and ideas with actual venues and, and on more of an architectural sort of scale about how people were interacting with space and each other and, and combining the two worlds together. These photos on the wall are a bit of a a hall of fame, I suppose you could say. They're kind of a collection of pictures from our archives from 2008 on, on to now, so the last nine years. It's great, lots of funny characters, crew that have kind of been with us over the years and some of them that have gone on their way. Some ridiculous loads on cars and trucks from the early years of us trying to pile as much stuff on there as possible. Um, various gas systems, old mental cars and things we, we've made over the years. Um, these are the spider legs when they were being cut off the customs and excise scanning machines in a yard up north. That's quite interesting. That's the afterburner rocket top, obviously just playing around with it, but uh, it would have been like a tank that sits underneath an aeroplane. That's the afterburner in its first year at Electric Picnic. Yeah, there's lo loads of fun, fun pictures here. And where did the idea for the spider specifically come from? Part of our evolution is, is we built this uh, big arena with lots of people coming to it and we were doing circus and um, we'd started stashing our lorries inside the stage and having our cranes like the crane you see on that lorry over there coming out the side of the stage hanging aerialists off of it and doing shows and we were we wanted to get the aerial potential much bigger so we were looking to build a giant tripod to basically to get the rigging points up in the air and we went on this scrap tour and we found these three big customs and excise scanning units um, huge great eight-wheeled vehicles massive great things and um, we realized that we could take the backs off them and create three separate legs next thing we went back with some guys and ripped them off and brought them back down to Glastonbury and built this giant tripod and of course once we got it up in the air it was much bigger than we ever thought it was going to be and at the time we were sort of uh, 
we were just quite gung-ho about it so we got our existing 360 stage that we had um, and we literally lifted that up with a crane and welded it on top of this tripod and it was this huge great mess of junk but it was really fun and really funny and that year we had the DJ right in the top and uh, the DJ had to climb up a ladder and walk across a gangplank way above the crowd and like he was in a harness and stuff but um, some of the DJs had turned up. We told them what was going to happen, but they turned up and suddenly there was a crowd waiting for them, but they were, just didn't have the balls to go up this thing. And so um, so then, so over the next couple of years, we refined it. We put the DJ booth underneath instead of on top, which made that more accessible and they were closer to the crowd and that was really good and made space for people underneath and, and, and took this great big stage off the top of it and refined it down to the legs, which were already looking quite spider-like. Um, so we went with the spider and, and gave it some eyes and took the cranes off of the lorries and actually welded the cranes on top so we had a bit more sort of movement and stuff and got our crew up there operating cranes and the aerialists on the cranes on top of the structure so we actually never ended up hanging them underneath anyway we ended up putting them on top. You know these are such kind of ambitious ideas are there do you test them before like are there big kind of like big rehearsals for these kinds of things? Yeah, it's big big rehearsals. A lot of it a lot of it we worked out as we went along on site. Um, obviously we don't do anything uh, dangerous that we're not totally, totally sure about. Yeah, it's been quite a journey getting there, but we're sort of in a realm now where, yeah, now when we do stuff, everything's well worked out, calculated and rehearsed and then goes on site. How did you first get involved with Glastonbury? Bertie and I have been going to Glastonbury since we were kids, really. Um, so, so we've always sort of been part of the fabric. And um, we were lucky to meet Michael in the early days when we had a few few plans and he sort of believed in us and, and supported us. How much do you remember about that first performance? At Glastonbury? It's, yeah, very, it sits very high in my memories actually. It was amazing because we didn't really, we'd, we'd never really seen the full potential. We'd kind of uh, visualised it and dreamed it and we, we thought we were going to create something that would have some magic about it. But the first time that we switched it on and, uh, you know, put some music on it and fired it up, I mean, it was incredible. It was really electric. People just flocked to it and we could see that something totally new had hit the scene. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing moment for us. How many people are involved in the build for something like the Glastonbury show? Glastonbury is a monster for us. We, we drag, you know, everything and all our people there. Uh, it's around 500 people. And that includes kind of, you know, everything that's needed to turn a grassy field into a, a massive, you know, spectacle and show. We've got welders and electronics technicians and gas engineers and a real variety of people come together for, for this time of year. Hi, I'm Matt, Arcadia's special effects manager. Um, I'm in control of all of the effects and anything flame-based or um, CO2-based is mostly my area of responsibility. If they want fire coming out of it, um, that's what our, our department does. We... Uh, We've got all of this kit here. Most of what you see there is the, the flame heads. During the show, we use these desks here to uh, to fire the flames. Hi, my name's Tim Smith. I'm the technical production manager for Arcadia. I look after all of our lighting, sound, uh, oversee with Matt the special effects systems. And my daily responsibilities are usually to take the creative director's ideas and produce them across lighting, sound effects, and run the teams. Um, on shows that ranges from the installation to the runnings of the show, uh, running timecode playback rigs, scheduling those bits, and that's pretty much it. What's your background? Uh, my background was rock and roll touring before I went to Arcadia. Um, I then had children, wanted to settle down a bit, and Arcadia's given me the basically my dream job. I get to blow things up, play with really cool equipment with really good people, and tour the world. This thing, this strange looking thing here, is one of our Tesla coils and we've been developing it to be able to run 
through various different frequencies, which actually in the end allows us to play music through it. It's really interesting. It's totally new technology. So Jeb's just testing it at the moment, and you can hear it firing up. Go and have a play with it. Over here. Hi, my name's Jeb Hawkins. I work for Lords of Lightning and Arcadia as a technical manager for Lords of Lightning and Arcadia's sort of main electrician, fixing, making everything work. And uh, Lords of Lightning is a company that runs shows using Tesla coils. Uh, Tesla coil is a sort of a machine that was developed by Nikola Tesla uh, over 100 years ago that produces high voltage electricity, so basically a lightning generator. Um, we do a series of shows where we have guys wear chainmail suits that act as a Faraday cage and they can actually throw lightning from their bodies. What kind of steps do you have to go through to make sure that that's 100% safe? The nature of the way a Tesla coil works is it's very, very high voltage, so there's not much current involved in the actual lightning that people will see. Um, and for this very reason, they wear a metal suit all around them that acts as a Faraday cage so rather than the electricity running through the person it runs over the metal and then out through the metal as opposed to the person. All this stuff on the corner here is sort of old relics really they're bits of old sculptures and stages from days gone by that's an, uh, an old DJ booth from the afterburner this was the first DJ booth that's the original that Pip and I made in a cow shed about 10 years ago it's quite nice to still have it around. And it's around here so most of this equipment here is the afterburner, which is our smallest, smaller stage. Um, and that's uh, still covered in dust from Burning Man. All that white dust you can see on it's from, from the desert. Um, you see that those are the trees, which are flaming trees. We've got smoke that comes out of the, the pipes and flames that come out the top. And the thing down there is the, the rocket, which sits on the very top of it. A huge flame comes out of the top and uh, that's made out of an aeroplane drop tank getting on to the more silly stuff that we built just for a laugh uh, but is um, just being repaired at the moment this is our sort of mobile stage it's a six-wheeled amphibious military vehicle from the 60s is it um, yes yeah, it's a lot of fun uh, we got it because it was just ridiculous and, and fun thing to have and we we ended up converting it uh, when it's all put together these other submarine moulds you can see behind us, these form the back of the bug. So these are like shells, they, they fit around the other way and they go on here. The cab at the front of the bug becomes a head and then obviously like the six wheels are kind of what motors it along. And we've um, done a few renegade shows where we turned up at festival, driven in, parked up in the middle and then the shells, two shells open up like a bug's wing. We have a DJ inside and a sound system and, and a, it's a bit of an undercover sort of Trojan horse. Where we've, um, kicking off a bit of party when no one's expecting it. So this, this corner here is our sort of main fabrication workshop. So we can make kind of anything in here. We've got hanging points up there so we can hang things right off of the roof and work on them around underneath them. Big saws and sort of shipbuilding, welding machines and all this machinery here can turn bits of metal into kind of anything really. Um, these over here are our mini spiders and these are part of the Metamorphosis show and they are uh, a sculpture of a spider that's fully robotic and uh, it climbs or crawls across a, a tension wire across the sky uh, with an actual person driving it and then it can go down and abduct 
different people from, from the crowd and move people around above the audience's head. They're really creepy and uh, we worked really hard on the movement of them and it actually replicates a real spider. So it gives people that kind of chill down their spine when they actually look up and see it. It's got that kind of eerie arachnid feeling about it. Where do you find all these uh, scrap metal and industrial parts? And we've got some amazing contacts in, in the industry and there's a lot of sort of disposal contracts where people dispose of things for the military and we're really lucky to kind of get get first dibs on a lot of that stuff. It changes all the time and we feel like the whole landscape in the last sort of 10 years has changed a lot so it's not as easy to get things in the UK so we're looking further afield at the moment see what exciting things are out there. Definitely when we started out part of the fun was sort of starting with nothing and, and just going exploring local little scrapyards and pulling out bits and pieces and making stuff and there still is there still are tons of little scrapyards around with loads of little bits and pieces and um, it's a it's a real resource and a real privilege if, if people can get their hands on and, and just start playing with it. Um, will you go to a scrapyard or an industrial area and look for something in particular have you planned it all out before and you're looking for very specific parts or are you kind of kind of ideas come to you as you're there? That, that's that's yeah that's um that's the essence of it really it's a whole chicken and egg thing um quite often we've had a form of a just a bit of an idea of a shape of something we wanted to make sometimes for a practical reason or a creative reason and then we've gone looking around scrapyards we used to go off on the motorbikes for, for a few days and we go to loads of different scrapyards and see what we find and sometimes we just see something and, and penny would drop and the design would change completely to something else um, as soon as we saw it and we'd pick that up where can we scrap you have to let the scrap lead the design obviously you have to have a little bit of an idea of where you're trying to go Arcadia hosts mostly electronic acts. I mean, what are your relationships with electronic music? We grew up with electronic music ourselves. I suppose we kind of grew up as the rave scene was was kicking off, and that's you know a big part of our kind of own kind of history and culture. Um, and we kind of like to try and make sure that the Arcadia experience is experienced by a really good cross section of people, and that's why we program a, a good variety of electronic music. We've played around and done some stuff with bands in the past, and it's very complicated technically but we've, we've had some good results as well, but we've kind of gone down the sort of more electronic route more recently because it just works so well with all of our effects and when you get the right artists who really understand how all the effects work and it becomes a really creative jam where the two things work together and, and the artists become, and the music becomes one of the other elements which Arcadia fuses together in its experiences. What kind of music works best in Arcadia? I think personally for me, I think drum and bass and breakbeat and bass music is really good the the way it works the two-step way it works and the big drops and things really give you some some really good points to really hit the effects hard one of the the more exciting things that we did was putting ronnie size and represent on the spider in bristol and he's obviously totally made in bristol and so are we and we brought those two things together and we spent ages organizing and planning all of the different intricacies of doing that technically and that was fantastic we had drummers on on parts of the stage double bassists we had mcs running all over it and it was an amazing performance because it was live and we were we were jamming with it as well and uh, yeah a lot of people said that really made, made their year. How important has Bristol been to Oh, it's, yeah, it's been been totally amazing actually as a, as a as a city for us to kind of base ourselves. I don't think we could have found a better spot in in the country. It's been incredible, and we've forged some incredible relationships with 
all of the different sort of amazing people that are there, uh, all the different skills and all the different scenes that are there, whether it's circus, you know, fabrication, all these different companies, we're kind of we're part of that community now. It's amazing, I don't think there's many places you could do that. You guys go to some lengths to make sure you're the work you do is kind of eco-friendly and has like environmental issues are important to you. Can you tell us a bit about that? All of us as a company really do care about the environment. Um, I think the biofuel flame system was a real, really good statement just to show people that things can be done differently. And uh, once you sort of get into the fact that the spider's over 90% repurposed and recycled materials, you know, the embedded energy in that is a really, really different thing to like a big set built thing that's used at a festival and then just taken down and landfilled afterwards. Our stuff gets used over and over again and because of that it's a really different sort of green footprint. This is a recycled vegetable oil. We, we've developed the world's first uh, recycled flame pyrotechnic system and we now that's all come from chip shops in Bristol, it's all their waste and we now in, in some of our shows we, we pump that through our flame system and that's what keeps everyone warm through the night. Do you have any plans to kind of venture outside of music? I mean you know this thing would look amazing in a, in a film and a science fiction blockbuster. <laughs> It's a great question. We we don't really rule anything out. Um, we're, we're always sort of scheming with different ideas and stuff, and uh, it's been great as a journey in the music industry, I suppose you could say. But yeah, we, we're always sort of dabbling and thinking about different ways to, to apply what we do to other things. With, with Arcadia at the moment, what we're doing is, um, I suppose, the essence of what we're trying to give people is a real, real, real experience. You know, where you sit there and you can feel the shockwave of the flames and you can feel the heat and you can feel the energy of the people around you and you're actually under something that's real and 3D and, and is, a, is a huge great lump of steel. It's not just, just you know a wooden facade on a bit of set kind of thing. We're, we're really trying to give people a, a quite a grounding earthy real experience uh, and I think for Arcadia itself that's something that's, um, that pe people have a real thirst for at the moment because everything's become so digital and everyone spends so much time online. Um, so we're, we're really passionate about providing that for people. What are the extremes of people's reactions that you've seen over the years? When we first fired up in Thailand, we did our test run the night before and um, we, we wanted to make sure that all the locals got a chance to come and see the show as, as well as the people from more inner city that were going to come out. So on the rehearsal night we invited uh, a few thousand families, kids and adults and stuff who, who obviously had no idea about Arcadia, didn't, didn't have any connection, they'd just, they'd just come to see what was happening. And um, when the flames went off on the first night, half the crowd fell over. <laughs> them sort of ran away and grabbed each other. And, uh, it was about the fourth or fifth flame that everyone realised it was all part of the show and stuff. And at that point, it was great. It was just like endless laughter for the rest of the night. And it was, that was a really lovely experience. So you might have seen the title of this month's episode and thought, what even is abstract turntablism? I'll allow Max Pearl over in our New York office to explain. You're listening to The Hour from Resident Advisor. Maria Chavez is a sound artist and a DJ with a fairly unusual approach to the turntable. A few years ago, she published a how-to guide on what she calls abstract turntablism. It's a book of essays and illustrations that demonstrate these techniques she's developed over the years. Instead of the usual, like, beat juggling routines or scratching, Maria's approach actually breaks the format open altogether. 
Often she'll place a broken record over an intact 12 inch and then let the stylus ride over one and then the other as they rotate together around the spindle. Other times she'll drum her fingers on the record itself like a typewriter or purposefully swing the needle across the width of a record to get this zipping noise out of it. Most of the time she's only using one turntable which will be literally stacked with these weird found sound records that she picks up while digging. So Maria actually just got back from her home state of Texas where she was working on a new sound installation called String Room. And I figured that would be a great opportunity to pop by her apartment in Brooklyn and see where her practice is at these days. So I am here in the home of Maria Chavez here in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Maria, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming over. It's really nice to see you. So before we get to abstract turntablism, uh, you just got back from Austin, Texas, where you were working on a sound installation, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just had a solo exhibition with collab projects in Austin, in downtown Austin. Um, I installed a large-scale sound installation of piano wire. Um, where I strung from floor to ceiling, 17-foot-high ceilings, a really big space. Um, also strung it from the cement pillars and uh, made custom-made guitar picks and invite the public to come in and pluck around, or if they want to bring in their own implements, they're more than welcome to. It was really just an interactive sound sculpture for the city of Austin as a thank you, because the city of Austin was a very important um, part of my life. and. We uh, immigrated there from Peru, from Lima, and when uh, we did, I was only two years old and uh, wasn't speaking properly, and my mother took me to a doctor where they realized I had water in my ears, and I couldn't hear for the first two years of my life. And so when we were in Austin, they discovered this, took the water out, and I heard my first sound when I was three in Austin. So to be brought back as a professional artist to present something, I felt like it was more of a gesture on my end to give the city of Austin a gift. So what we just heard was a record being played through two channels simultaneously using a double-headed needle stylus. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us the story behind this kind of crazy piece of equipment you have. Yeah, uh, this was a double-headed needle that was gifted to me last year by King Brit, uh, who's a producer, DJ extraordinaire. He even toured with Sade. Apparently these uh, needles were gifted to hip-hop DJs in the early 2000s. They're all prototypes. So I have number 50 of 250. You can see it there on the label. And uh, this company, Rake, doesn't exist anymore. Only hip-hop DJs receive them because it was really for hip-hop turntablism. King didn't know what to do with it. 
and he just left it in the back of his closet and then one day last year he was cleaning it out and he found it and he just texted me and was like what's your address and I was like what are you sending me and then it was this double needle and it's completely changed my life I'm forever indebted to him for giving me this implement to expand on my practice it's completely opened a whole new world In 2012, you published this how-to guide for abstract turntablism, and I was wondering if you could give us a sense of some of the, the methods and the techniques that you describe in there. Sure, yeah. Well, for the piece that I just made for the intro of this, um, that's actually not in the book because it's, I guess now the book is considered abstract turntablism practices for one needle. So now the next phase is to make a more cohesive book dealing with history of turntable mechanics and then how to ruin those mechanics, and then how to implement two needles. But the original book was um, Abstract Turntablism Practices for One Needle, uh, and they're all techniques that I developed through my performance practice. When I decided to make the book, the whole idea was, at the time, I was trying to separate from it because the industry was trying to box me in, and I was, I was still more interested in trying to step out of that because I see the turntable as a tool that opened me up to what the world of sound and sound art really is, but I still respect it because it, it, it was my tool to enter. So a lot of the practices have to deal with electroacoustic sound qualities. Sometimes you hit the turntable, it teaches you the different phases of a broken needle and how to utilize them um, in the different techniques. So the different techniques have like suggestions like use a broken needle number four for this technique sounds best, you know, or maybe use a brand new needle, number one for this one, you know, and, and kind of gives you a, a step-by-step guide to also being able to implement these techniques yourself. It was kind of a fuck you to the music industry for trying to push me into releasing recorded works, which I don't do with my practice. I haven't released an album since 2004. And also because I don't, I don't really see this practice as my own. I see it as a gift that was shown to me that I have my instincts and the talent to see and feel the instincts of how to react to certain situations and accidents that happen with the turntable. And because of that, I felt like it was important to share it with other people because it's ours ultimately, because I don't, I don't do this on my own. I have to do it with you. I need you in the room in order for me to feel like it has meaning. And because of that, it, it's not mine. With my workshops, I use my book as a guide, so it's actually become really a lot more helpful with my lecture series than I than I originally anticipated. Normally with my workshops, we start off where we all perform a Christian Markley piece called Record Players. It's a video that we follow where the whole idea of Record Players is he wanted to have the record make sound without it being played as what it's meant to be played as. So you like flip it around, I don't know if you can hear it. Um, you, you knock it, you just rub your nails across it, and uh, you hit them with the other vinyl records, and then um, at the end, you break it. And then from the break, uh, that's when the workshop starts. Because I really like to just cut to the chase and be like, okay, we're, we're rethinking what this media value is now. Because people think that once it's broken, it's ruined. But actually, with my turntables and practice, it's 
a whole new world, a whole new language. And so from there, we start with uh, the techniques in the book that were all developed through chance and uh, chance operations. So we have the pendulum swing, which was actually an accident that happened in Mexico City in like 2008. They just threw the the turntable in the in the airplane I screamed and I was like oh my god my turntable is broken and I went and it was it, the the back of the tone arm was bent but I didn't have time to go and replace it so I had to go and perform that night with this bent tone arm and then because of the of the bend the na- the um the needle was actually gliding across the record in this really beautiful way that I could never replicate by hand uh, and then slowly but surely I was learning how to replicate it with other turntables but really falling in love with it with the original turntable and then finally that turntable died and I was thinking like should I when I get my new turntable should I like bend the toner (laughs) I was like no no then it's too much about me it's about chance you know so pendulum swing is one uh, and then there's uh, the dragging dagger which is a very simple procedure where you pretty much just start from the spindle hole of the of the record and you drag the needle across the surface area of the vinyl to the to the end of the record um, and then you do it without the motor engaged and you do it with the motor engaged and you practice with different uh, pressure points and and that really changes the um, tactility and your relationship with the topography of the vinyl at the surface area so yeah it's different um, different techniques like that or working with broken shards and how you implement it with different weights and things like that So the basic framework of one of your live sets is like a layering process. Like you've got this platter stacked with vinyl and you're sort of adding and subtracting and trying out new combinations. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that that's that's one of the, the many different techniques that I use. And um, there's they're kind of like my songs, but I never really know where they'll start or where, where they'll end. But I know that the configurations of the two records always have a good energy between them uh, and that that's one of the layered techniques that I teach. So earlier you mentioned that there are certain pairings, duos of records that you find to be particularly interesting and dynamic in terms of layering them and making them interact with each other. Uh, Could you give us an example of of one such pairing that you often turn to during one of your live sets? Right. And I actually don't know who it is <laughs> because it's, it, there's no label on it. It's a, like an, a 10 inch white album that I broke in 2010. I feel like it's much more valuable now as a broken piece than it was when it was whole. And then I like to put it uh, with this uh, record, the groupies from 1968 is this producer that put four really popular groupies into a recording studio and had them, have a conversation about having sex with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and all these guys and it to me it's it's a it's a combination of like melancholy feminist conversation about like the past and how it's still relevant now how women still talk about themselves and about others and then it's also just a really sweet piece together she got the prize yes yeah, and yeah, now she's with the the leader, Laura was the roadies. Well, they make a good couple. They're both groupies. <laughs> <laughs> she do? She's the only way she'll be. And I walked in the room and she was right in the middle. Right, right there. <laughs> no, they all did. If you hang them See, well long enough, it pays off. It does. It's nice to be seen with like a, you know, a big celebrity. It was a big thing if they stay with you the next day. It means they might even like you. 
Hmm. <laughs> Nobody goes there. The the and it's going to take away and marry him. And it's very bad because the cats don't think that way. Because it's all the time. It's drugs. Running out and heard them. I don't. I can get into somebody mentally. Or the group. How about when you get stoned and you get, don't you get very aggressive? Mentally. They all know the road manager from that group. Oh, violent. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know. Yeah. And she'll be, and I, you know, and he's going to take, I just had a, smoke is up back, smoke is up back, So what we were just hearing was a broken record laid on top of an intact record, which was what was causing that effect where one source would cut in and then the other source would cut in and then we'll go back to the other source. How did you come to that technique? When I discovered it, I think I was 22, 23, that was like one of the very first things I ever learned was, uh, I call it the most valuable break, where it breaks, the record breaks, but the spindle hole is still intact, so it'll stay. And when, um, when it stays, then it's just a matter of hand pressure when it comes to actually deciding which samples the needle will pick up on. Because ultimately that's what I'm doing, right, is just uh, live physical sampling. And that's what broken records are. They're just unintentional samples, physical results of unintentional samples. Whereas people now with digital choose what they want and then put them together in, in digital interfaces and formats. I do it live with just one turntable. Where would you say that you fall in that continuum between a live set and a DJ set? I feel like it's separate from DJing because with DJ culture, they want to play something that's intentional and it's all about form and shape with music and so matching tones, matching backbeats or not. And same with hip hop turntablism too. They're not, they're not necessarily trying to make these sample cut choices for, for the sake of its electroacoustic qualities as much as what's been recorded into the vinyl itself and trying to make that lock that into a known loop that they feel comfortable with manipulating. Whereas with me, loops are inherent to the machine. I don't choose the loops. I don't choose them the tracks to be loopy. It's just that I'm on a rotating motor. The machine chose it for me and I'm just evolving with the machine. It's not like I'm choosing it to sound like this. And so it became a really interesting philosophical conversation about what music and sound really are um, and the division between the two. Um, I feel like this is unintentional sampling, which is a different form of looking at um, playback technology and manipulating it as implements for performance practice.
with a vinyl, you're so lucky because you have an exposed surface area. And so it gives you, it, it lends this opportunity to layer uh, smaller sized records on top of larger sized records. And what happens is the smaller sized record blocks the way of the needle. And so as you press uh, different types of pressure on the smaller sized record, that changes the loop of the blocked needle by like milliseconds, which is actually really, um, really impactful. I have two 45s here that I'll put on top of a 12 inch and uh, you guys can hear the different loops that you can make with them. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the EP that you have here that you curated? Yeah, well, this EP is uh, curated by me. It's not a release of mine. Uh, I have a friend, Robert Deeds. He's based in Philly. And he used to be the storage manager of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And uh, I didn't know this, but apparently the Philadelphia Museum of Art has the largest collection of Spinetta antique pianos in the world. So he had access to these storage units. And some of these pianos are completely, you know, broken beyond repair. Uh, and one day he decided to go in there with a mini disc recorder and record the broken keys of the pianos. And so when I was there in Philly playing a show, we were hanging out afterwards and I kept hearing this like succession of keys, but they all sounded weird. And I was like, what are we, what are we listening to right now? And he was like, oh, this is the piano keys from the, from the Spinetta pianos I was telling you about. And I was like, this is gorgeous. Like this is. So, such a beautiful idea about deterioration. There's so many different levels of thinking about it, and I want to perform it. So then we got in touch with Angus Tar Taranowski, who does In Context, the label. Um, it's like limited edition, six inches uh, of 
Victoria Ketty, Shelley Bergen, really great electronic sound artists. Uh, and so it's cut on a plexiglass, so it's square. And when I began to perform it last year, I, this is the very first one, and I've been performing it for over a year now with the double needle, and um, it's a really beautiful piece. That's my techno. Have you ever had another DJ watching you perform and like totally freaking out because of the way you're just like abusing these records? Oh, all the time. Oh my God, it's crazy. I'm like, really an object? You're gonna you're gonna yell at me for? It? I mean, like it's mainly men, but I, I understand. You know, it, it's it's a coveted object, and you know, and also capitalism and consumerism has really um, integrated itself into our society where things are so valuable like even audio equipment is valuable and I feel like there's there's something to allowing destruction to participate in equipment destroying itself or, or listening to how it destroys itself because then it becomes more organic because then it, it becomes its own thing that it has a glitch or something that another object doesn't have and and I feel like that in itself makes the deterioration a lot more valuable. But unfortunately, we live in this environment of fast fashion and just get it new. Everything has to be new. And so I feel like in a way, this practice is, is, ch is really challenging and, and unexpectedly political uh, for a lot of reasons that it's a whole other show on its own. But um, I, I understand the grief. And it's really funny when it's an audio file at a workshop because it's normally it takes them like 15 minutes to get the courage to break the record but then once they break it their whole world is completely changed and it's almost like therapy I feel like the workshops for them to reintegrate and learn what 
the broken pieces mean to them now. Beautiful to watch. it for this month's edition of the hour thank you for listening you might remember that we told you about real scenes london in a recent episode of the hour and i can tell you that the film will be released around the middle of june it's been in production for almost a year and we're pretty happy with it so when it does hit the site make sure you take a look